Hi guys, James Wilson-Taylor here for Rock Sound and welcome to another edition of the Rock Sound podcast. This is where you can listen to all our latest interviews and catch up on a few you might have missed over the last 12 months. And today it is my conversation with Black Veil Brides frontman Andy Beersack. We've actually done quite a few of our video calls over the last year with Andy, which you can always catch up with on our YouTube channel. But this particular conversation focuses on his recent book. It is entitled They Don't Need to Understand. It's a really interesting autobiography that, of course, encompasses all his childhood memories, his early musical beginnings, right the way through to his success in the band and his solo career, all put together with his friend Ryan J. Downey. I asked him about a lot of specific moments that he chose to include in the book, particularly actually his uh, musical theatre memories from his childhood, which clearly influenced a lot of the more dramatic elements you see in Blackfield Brides today. And the title of that book, which is of course taken from his Andy Black solo project, Plus, you'll hear a little bit of an update on that new Black Veil Brides album, The Phantom Tomorrow, which is now set for release in October. The book and the audiobook are both available for purchase right now, so let's hear all about it, shall we? In his own words, this is Andy Biersack. We've been having these video calls, chatting with every single person while we're all at home at the minute, and I'm delighted to say our guest today with his brand new book, They Don't Need to Understand, is Mr. Andy Biersack. How are you, man? I'm good. Now, I am impressed that you're chatting with every single person. Every single person. What an incredible pursuit that you are on uh, to try to chat with every person. I'm about 110 down. There's a while to go, but we're going through them, getting through every single person. You you better pick up the pace because (laughs) if you're trying to get through every person and you've only got 110 down so far. uh, No, it's it's nice to talk to you again. Um, I feel like uh, we did this one of these very early on in the new reality of our world and uh now we've kind of i guess settled into this is how things are done um but yeah there's a lot going on there's there's a lot of things to talk about so i'm happy to be here absolutely man no i'm excited to talk to you about this book i've just been reading through it the last few days and it's uh it's something of course we mentioned in the last time we chatted a little bit but i guess the obvious place to start is why now you know i mean it's it's not like you're slowing down at all we know you've got loads of new music stuff all coming and everything why did you feel like now was the right time for you to start reflecting a little bit and put those memories down on the paper um so this started i would say like 2017 uh, the the original concept for it essentially what happened was i had I quit drinking and there's this kind of like euphoria that you go through, or at least I experienced when you first, when you're somebody who drinks heavily or isn't great to their body. Um, and then you, you become healthier, you sober up or whatever kind of terminology you want to use. I went on the, the 2015 warp tour and I had little few relapses as they say here and there, but for the most part, I wasn't drinking from then on. And then by the time I reached, uh, the 2017 warp tour that I did, it was full blown eating really healthy, working out every day, just feeling awesome. And somewhere in between that period, I went through this like initial euphoria to then the, the kind of all the things that I've been staving off for years by drinking heavily and trying to mask my feelings and my anxieties and all the things that I have felt since I was a young kid, um, all kind of came rushing back to me. And I was just in this really weird place where I kind of just felt both um, clarity uh, and bum out, like uh, equal parts all the time. I would feel happy that I was acutely aware of, of my uh, thoughts and, and what I was doing and all that kind of stuff, but also bummed out that I had wasted so much time, that I had acted embarrassingly, that I had maybe uh, severed friendships or been bad to the people around me or whatever it was. And so all those things kind of 
came together and I started thinking, well, I'm at this point in my life where I would really like to be able to write about everything I'm feeling, all of the experiences that I've had to this point. And, you know, kind of you're, you're feeling very kind of like introspective. I think for anybody who's kind of going through a big change in their life, you start to reflect on things. And, and famously, uh, you know, I was 27 years old. I think the 27, 27th year seems to be one that is very difficult for everybody. But for some reason, creative people tend to have a very difficult time there. Obviously, there's the really tragic stories of all these people who have lost their lives at that age. And while I was fortunate to not be in that position, I certainly felt uh, just this kind of weight of life at that age. And so I started writing down just different stories and things I could think of from my past, both from the perspective of getting out of that and also from an informative perspective of like, how did I get to this point from the positives, negatives, everything in between. Um, and then I, I basically kind of coincidentally at the same time was approached by a uh, publishing company that was kind of just at the time they were just kind of throwing out casting nets to get IP. You know, this person's in a band or this person's some sort of celebrity of some kind, let's do a book. And so, but at that point there was really no belief in me that I could, uh, at 27, write a book by myself. And I didn't really have any uh, knowledge as to whether I could do that or not. And so uh, I believe that I could figure it out, but I kind of went with what the, the the plan was. And so I was assigned essentially a ghostwriter who's a very nice person. Um, and we worked for about a month. And then I read back everything that we were doing. And it didn't sound at all like me. It sounded like somebody telling my story. And I have, you know, not again, not to be um, too self-serving, but I think I have a very distinct uh, terminology, the way that I, I, I operate and the way I say and do things, I think is at least distinctive enough that a fan of, of my art could know whether it's me or not. And just from a personal perspective, I didn't want it to not be my story. I didn't want it to be a filtered version. So we wound up parting ways with, uh, with that situation. And at the same time, uh, I have been friends with Ryan Downey for years. He worked for various publications over the years that have, he's interviewed me in different capacities for cover stories and things. And he just had this wealth of basically me from the age of 19 through my mid to late twenties of these long interviews. And so I called him up and I just thought, well, one of my best friends and someone who's like a brother to me happens to be an incredible journalist maybe that's the place to go to try to like shuffle through some of these memories and thoughts. And he could really help me craft this narrative. So I called him up and then it really, we hit the ground running. Um, ultimately that previous publisher wound up falling apart. I guess the company changed hands and we were no longer doing the book there. And so then we just kind of had this several year period where when there was time we would get together uh, go to lunch for yeah, a number of hours, sit at a local vegan restaurant by my old house and talk for hours and hours. And uh, I would tell him stories and we would record those things. And then I would go home and write a bunch of stuff and send it to him. He would write things and send it to me. It would be a combination of him giving me jumping off points to start from, as well as him not fact checking, but uh, making sure that the the content of what I was saying was all accurate. If I told a story about being at a festival in Europe the day that my grandfather died because of me being not some like at the time, particularly being in my early 20s, I wasn't really recording the locations and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he was able to go find all those specific things and then give the reader the specificity. So you really feel like you understand where you are in all those moments. And then the decision was made to, and this is an extremely long answer, I'm sorry, but the decision was made um, to, to kind of, 
initially the idea was to do like vignette stories and then kind of cut it off right when the band started to go. Uh, and it was just going to be for my childhood. And then the reality was that my life had, there was just no way to tell the story of my life without including the eras of the band. And, but also leaving it open-ended enough that I could later in life write a traditional memoir that goes into detail about every single thing. Um, so we just wanted to touch on everything. And then it just became a matter of, do we do this in sequential order? Do we do it in, in little short stories and bursts? And I think ultimately what we landed on is kind of a little bit of a mix of, of different formats. And I think it, it works really, really well. Plus there are so many positive things in my life that have come in kind of from all those things, whether it's, you know, talking about my relationship with my family, talking about my relationship with Julia, talking about um, my relationship with the band members, all the things that are great things. It felt important to be able to show that positivity and not make this a book that's just about introspective sadness because that while that's there and I wanted to be honest and tell the truth of my life. Um, it's also an incredible story of someone who's incredibly fortunate and lucky to be in the position to even be writing the book in the first place. Yeah, of course. It's interesting to hear a little bit about how you guys were processing finding the right stories to work on together and kind of, you know, going through your own little little memories like that. There's a great, great quote I picked out from the intro, actually, that I think sums up something very nicely is when I think of how, how the struggles must be like when you're starting to write a book for the first time. Um, it's sometimes hard to differentiate between what you remember happening as a very young kid and what you remember simply because an adult told you about it later. Like, yeah. what was it like actually having to go back to those particularly early childhood memories with the any kind of, I don't know, I, I guess the photos are in there. They must have helped yeah. kind of piece together what that was like. Well, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of a journey to get to the truth of the situation. And even then you never really find it because you're only going off of your perspective. But the truth is that that, uh, I was important for me to say that early on because I feel like that's also true of my whole life and I've always been kind of aware of it. You know, I talk about having these memories of going with my mother to her job when I was a baby, but I don't actually have those memories necessarily. I just have been told about it for so long and, and it's been such a, a part of our family lore, so to speak, that it becomes imprinted in your own memory. And so those things, you can extrapolate that through the entire book of like, I'm only talking about my perspective in these situations. And if you asked any of the other people who are sitting next to me on the bus or on the plane or whatever else, they may have had an entirely different experience of the situation. So I wanted to be very clear. Sometimes um, memoirs or books are written from the perspective of now you're going to hear the truth. And I always think that that's a little silly because while we all believe that our version of events is exactly the way that it went down, I would be a fool to not understand or acknowledge the fact that that is subjective to a certain degree. Are there truths? Yes. Do we live in a society where those truths become less and less prevalent and it becomes more about opinion, possibly, and that's very dangerous and that's a whole other conversation. But the truth of the matter is that when it comes to a, a scenario that I'm describing, it's very likely that the nuances and the things within that context of that scenario could be totally different to somebody else. So I wanted to say up front, uh, this is the way I remember the last 30 years of my life. And this is how I saw those events. Um, and and maybe somebody else would would remember it differently, but you're reading my book, so that you're getting my version. Yeah, of course. And it's it's fascinating, those childhood sections, and particularly the, the aspect I want to focus in on a little bit, which I hadn't quite realized about you, um, was definitely a childhood love of musical theater. And I know there's specific matches of Phantom of the Opera and those kind of performances, um, going to performance art school for a little while. And something that, you know, I, you wouldn't know this about me, I had a big musical theater background as well. And I'm always oh. fascinated 
when I run into people like yourself who are in the creative industries who have had a bit of that basis and that backing, but gone off in a completely different direction because loads of people I know did exactly that and do really interesting things, but you can still see where that influence is. And I think with your work, particularly with the band, of course, there's theatrical elements. It's definitely a part of who you are there. Talk to me a little bit about those, I guess those days at the art school and, and what it was about that theatricality that really appealed to you in terms of its creativity. I think one of the things that I was fortunate with when I was really young was that all of the things that I liked were introduced to me as uh, counterparts of one another in the sense that there, like, there was no real distinction for me between Sweeney Todd to the Misfits to Bruce Springsteen or Alice Cooper. You know what I mean? It was all just like stuff I like. And so the distinctions between those subsections of people and their interests came much later in life for me. So to me, it was all just kind of this big pot of shit I liked. Um, and I was just as, I could just as easily be listening to Elvis Costello as a kid as I could Michael Crawford singing Music of the Night. Like that that was, they were all part and parcel of just interests. So as I kind of went through life and, and songwriting and everything else, like I referenced things like, um, you know, for instance, I reference uh, my friends all the time because I like, the the way that that song is structured and we've actually utilized similar song structure a few times in some of our um ballad songs not stealing the the song itself but the pacing um and and certainly because we've done a lot of concept records and that kind of theatrical stuff it all plays in but i think it's just a love of performing and i think that you know again and i also touch on this in the book is that i have had for right or for wrong that for my entire life the assumption that i should be watched on stage, you know, like from a time I was a little kid, it was, hey, everybody come watch me do this thing. And I think that musical theater was a great opportunity to do that. I think that acting in any capacity was a great opportunity to do that. I think that not being particularly good in school and turning it into a joke and trying to get everybody's attention was a way to do that. I think playing a hockey as the goalie was a way to do that. I think everything in my life, if I'm really honest, is in service of trying to get attention. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, that's just the truth of it. I, and I think that maybe some people would be reticent to, to admit that, but look, man, like that's, that's just the truth of, of who I am. I like to perform and I like to entertain. And as, as a, as a person in my life where I'm at now, um, I can play off of all those different things. You know, I'll have a two hour long conversation with my friend, I, my, my buddy, uh, John Bradley West, who I will, t- we will talk for two hours on a given morning about, uh, Phantom of the Opera and nearly every single time we talk it goes back to Phantom of the Opera and you know I my friend Chance Kilgore who I grew up with he is Mr. Musical Theater so he introduced me to all these deep cut shows when we were teenagers and um, you know it's just it was just part of my upbringing and then going to a school that was very musical theater oriented for a time just being around people singing in the hallways and all that stuff like it was just it's just a fact of, of my upbringing so it certainly plays into what I do on stage Um and I don't know that it, I don't know that the the hard rock or metal world understand how much of those things go hand in hand. When you look at Iron Maiden or anything else, which again, I reference in the book, the iconography and the imagery, the, the theatricality of the show, the mascot, all of these things are very musical theatery. And it's just maybe people don't realize that. 
Yeah, no, it's it's funny. It always seems like a good gateway for creatives in a lot of ways. It's a very accessible medium in a lot of ways. But yeah, it, it, it's just always interesting to me to see the little elements that appear in other people's work like yourself in that way. And in terms of, you know, you mentioned the hockey stuff there, and there's a lot of really interesting childhood stories. The thing that I picked out on that I just found fascinating because it's so relatable was um you making the mixtape for the friend of yours on the hockey team. That's such a relatable thing. Like when you're a kid, <laughs> when you're that age and you're so passionate about certain songs, you want to share it with people, even if they're they're not going to have any interest at all it's like this is my special thing please listen to it um yeah i mean it, it's it's it, it plays into that idea that you talk about a lot of feeling like a bit of an outsider at that age but that feels like again a part of you and the, certainly of your on stage persona that's really fueled what you've done and what you've written since then right yeah i mean i, I think you know, it's actually funny because I was looking back at when we got the copies of the book and I, I included that photo of like the CD that I gave to people that I wanted to have audition for the band. And like the songs on there are so funny. There's like deep cuts from like the most recent at the time New York Dolls reunion record, like things that are just so bizarre to give to the average person, especially back in like 2006 of like, hey, come learn this. But yeah, I mean, I've always I've always just felt like the music that I loved was so representative of me and I wanted to share that in so many ways that like, you know, it, it, it is interesting. And now, I mean, sorry to kind of go off on a different subject, but it is funny. I, I don't know if the, if the playlist thing is as effective as the, the giving somebody a thing. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I grew up with a different situation, but I wonder if creating a playlist for somebody has the same feeling. I suppose it does in the way that you're sharing a love of music and you want somebody to hear these songs that maybe they haven't heard before. I guess it's kind of the same thing. But I remember one of the things for me, because I'm, I try to enjoy like visual art and everything, I would draw covers and you know all this stuff. I remember making, I made a mixtape for my mom to try to get her to understand and listen to different punk rock bands. And I tried to find like the most, uh, what I thought my mom's, like my mom's musical interests and then like the the entry point of those things into the punk rock bands that I listened to and how they would like line up in certain like against me songs, whatever else. And I made like a whole cover and like I put like credits on the back and like, you know, I produced by me and I was like a little kid. But that's the kind of fun stuff that I do. I do miss. Yeah, of course. I, the, the other element that you kind of alluded to earlier, and it's something we've talked about before, is you didn't want to have, I believe the phrase you used in the book when you talk about is these kind of rock guy stories, the sort of stereotypical, here's the debauchery, here's all the crazy times. You know, you didn't want it to be that. And then fair enough. But I, I just wonder in terms of those times, now that you are sober, now that you are able to reflect on those times back in the day, what are the positives you take away other than the obvious thing of like what you learned in terms of being a, you know, a more healthy individual, there must be positive moments that you really can stick out from that, that crazier time. If we want to use a better phrase, you know, what were those, those kind of stories, if any, that maybe you thought that's one I would like to revisit at some point. Well, that's why I try to put in there that there was a time early on, especially when, the drinking and the partying and the hanging out was fun and in no way dark. There wasn't anything about it that wasn't just like a bunch of people that were excited for the future of what they were doing. It didn't turn dark for me until it became a crutch. And at that point, it just felt like, you know, plus the other thing is like a lot of these stories are just fucking embarrassing. You read these books and it like the, the pride that someone has in like the dumbest thing they've ever done is always shocking to me. I try to not, celebrate stupid shit and uh while i do understand that there's entertainment value in it it's just not for me now the reality is um i was not a miserable uh like 
dark cloud at all times, even when I was feeling that way internally, there were always times that were fun and always times that were enjoyable. I would be uh, rewriting my history to say that I walked around in complete sadness all the time during that era. But there certainly was a time, by the time you hit 2014, 2015, especially, where those positive times were extremely rare for me. And if, if, it, if it was exhibited, it was me wearing a mask to try to get through how I was feeling internally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, I can watch videos or interviews of myself and while I, I will cringe in some ways, like the first time that we went to download and did like our first, like we did a, a press conference announcing our first tour there. And this is before set the world on fire came out and there was all this buzz around the band and people were just obsessed with hating us or obsessed with like, there was just, nobody wasn't talking about the band at that time. And walking around is like, slamming different booze in every interview and like every single interview i've got a different bottle in my hand and like i was you know, i was 19 years old or 20 years old I, I i was just having fun and there's nothing about you know and maybe maybe if i look at it through the microscope of like those were poor decisions or whatever but at that you know i can't really look at it that way because the truth of the matter is that you know those were not dark times that was just you know being a, a guy who just always wanted to do this and getting this opportunity and being able to do it. Um, so I would say that, you know, there is, I want people to take away from it, not, oh my God, you should be afraid of having a good time, but more so please understand that in my experience, those good times can often, often turn into not so good times and to be consciously aware of yourself and what you're allowing for yourself. And if there are things that you're trying to mask with booze or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, it's, it's not really, going to work and ultimately those things will will come back and, and potentially worse yeah, of course it, it's it's funny as well the other really interesting thing particularly talking about the band and, and those kind of early reactions and stuff it's it's really really lovely notice like it's towards the end where you say about the fans which is something you know we talked about before and a lot of how grateful you are of that fan community but uh the quote i wanted to pick out um the connection black veil brides has with our fans has meant everything i could fill this entire book trying to list all of the incredible stuff fans have done for us and given to us in many ways particularly the latter end of this book really does feel like a love letter to those fans and to that community what do you hope that those people who stuck with the band through all these years take away from reading this book i mean i look the the initial concept if we're speaking in broad strokes of like writing this other than just getting my stories out there if we're trying to find like what the narrative would be my biggest hope is always to be able to show that and i've said it before Nothing that I do or the experiences that I have or the things that you get to see me do as me entertaining or whatever it is, those things are not remarkable or impossible. They're just things that I worked very hard for and then had the good fortune to have people understand and support and, and prop me up to do. And so you don't get to the place where you're writing a book and people are reading it, if not for the people putting you in that position in the first place. Um, and that's, I believe, universally true. Very few people put themselves in the position, at least in the entertainment industry, you have to have an audience. And if that audience doesn't allow for you that opportunity, you can't then in turn write the book for that audience. So I think that there's a lot of, again, not to be too critical of anybody else, but there's a lot of self-serving nature that goes on with writing these books. And I want to be able to acknowledge that it, if it wasn't for people putting us in the position to succeed, that wouldn't have occurred. And specifically for this band, you know, and I don't want to make us this sort of like singular entity, but I think probably more so than any of our peers that we came up with at the same time, we received 
uh, little to no enthusiasm from people within the industry. We were turned down at every every place we went. We couldn't get shows. We couldn't get anywhere. We got to play backyards and basements and things in the beginning. And even then, when we started to succeed, our peers, uh, the other the people in the industry, all wrote us off immediately. All we were the butt of everybody's joke. Um, and yet, unlike many bands that experienced that, our audience said, you know, fuck that and pushed us forward and slammed open these doors, got us on a major label, got us to all these places, got us to a position where even if you didn't like us, you couldn't ignore that we were there and then put us in the position for people to listen to the music and go, oh, actually, I don't, this isn't like, like what I thought it was at all. And then to give us that kind of career trajectory to get to this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and it's sort of funny, Scarlet Cross has been doing, again, thanks to the, the fans, been doing really well recently. And there's been a kind of a, in recent interviews and stuff I've done, people have said, um, you know, well, you know, I, I never really, uh, you know, you guys have, haven't blown up in a, in a uh, mainstream way, or it's been a long time since you've had like a mainstream success with your records. How have you been able to keep afloat? And we look at your social medias and everything, and you have such a big following. Um, I just, I, I always try to specify and credit the fact that we've never been the darlings of anything. And yet our audience has always made it happen for us. And here we are in 2021 and we have a song that's doing better than things we've done in years. We have a record coming that's got all this hype and excitement and um, it's just incredible. And it's, it's all down to them. Yeah. I guess it again ties into the title of the book itself, which is they don't need to understand. Obviously that's a song reference in there anyway, but I thought it was interesting that it is also the final words in the book itself. It's definitely a, a phrase that seems to have a lot of significance for you. And I imagine just ties into what we've just said about that. Yeah, it's sort of funny. That song, uh, it played on so many different levels. And I talk about it in the book, like the, the Andy Black Project was one that I just had to kind of like push forward. Again, there was no belief in that. Then we made it happen. Then the fans viewed it and bought the T-shirts and showed that it was viable. And then all of a sudden now I've got a record deal doing that. Like it's just it always comes down to the audience. And that's why I like to say at the end of the book there. You don't need to worry about how everybody feels about you. You should be considerate to how the people that have put you in the position that you're in feel about what you're doing and not pander, but be, have, a, have a line of communication with your audience that says, look, I, I care about what, what your interest in our art is and I want you guys to be happy. And that's the case. I mean, are you going to please everybody all the time? No. Does the band have to evolve? Yes but you try to stay with that connectivity that you have with the audience, because I've seen time and time again, as you have, how many bands in the last 10 or 15 years were totally viable, had an audience, people cared, and then made a, made a decision to not care anymore about what their audience thought or have any kind of connectivity with their audience. And then we're gone overnight because the reality is all of this dangles on a wire. And that wire is whether the thing you're making entertains and inspires the people who care about what you're making. And if it doesn't, then they don't care anymore or they're uninterested in giving you the opportunity. And so through the ups and downs and records that we've made that have worked well and records that we made that haven't, we've been very fortunate that our fans have stayed with us and given us the time to get to the point that we're at now. No, absolutely, man. Absolutely. And on that note, before I get let you go, you know, obviously I've got to ask about the new music. We've talked already about the single and stuff. We know the album is, is coming soon. What can you tell us about plans, I guess, for 2021? I know it's a, a weird old time where everyone's plans are changing, but currently how, how's everything looking in the world of Black Veil Brides? Uh, fantastic. Today, some some decisions will be made uh, as, of, as of this recording about timeline and other things we've got. We're pretty close. I mean, we're uh, I've got 
just about 90% of the thing in the position where I can listen to it and it's mastered and ready to go. We've got little tweaks here and there. Um, and then it just comes down to getting the scheduling together, getting it out and figuring out the release plan and everything else. But, uh, you know, I've got calls with the comic book publishers and we're doing, we're doing a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a really, it's an extremely detailed project that, uh, I feel very fortunate that we've had the opportunity to do because despite COVID and everything else, like the funny thing is people say, Oh, you had all this time to do this. This was the plan from February of last year. I wrote the story in February of last year. We just happened to get to the position where we did have this time to do this and I could design these characters and all this other stuff. And, you know, then you go through the period where, we're making videos and things are changing and then we've got to finish the record. Then there's bigger outbreaks and we live in Los Angeles where it's just been really hit so hard. So the safety of being in a studio has been questionable. And so we've taken time off and came back and thankfully everybody has their own home studio situations. Jake and Jinx are able to do incredible things just from their home when needed and, and play these insane parts and this orchestration. Uh, it just uh, listening to it now, everybody says that their new record is the best thing they've ever done. But I would say that to me, this album is as good as the best things we've done. It, to me, it, it's the best thing we've done since Wretched and Divine. And I think it ranks up there as far as like a complete work with the best stuff we've done. So I won't say you're going to love it more than anything else because you never know. But for us, it's the thing we're the most excited about in years and years. And it feels it feels like it's a fucking great album. And, and listening to it, I'm obviously not. I'm obviously not an objective listener, but as, as trying to take myself out of that and put myself in the position of just a listener, I think that there's not a single song on it that doesn't just, isn't just awesome. And, and we're so excited about it. Really exciting stuff, man. Exciting times ahead. Well, in the meantime, people can go check out the book now. There's the audio book as well. I encourage you to do so. If you're a fan of Andy's work, you know, it's a really, really fascinating read. And, uh, and just in the meantime, as always, man, stay safe out there. We will see you in the UK when we can. We really hope it's getting sooner. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks again to Andy. You can watch footage from that conversation right now over on the Rock Sound YouTube channel. Just search for the video call playlist. We've actually had a number of conversations with Andy over the last year, including with his Paradise City co-star Bella Thorne as well. So go and check that out too. Make sure you hit subscribe to the Rock Sound podcast over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts to get all our latest interviews. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode. In the meantime, I've been James Wilson-Taylor, and thank you for listening to the Rock Sound podcast.